Part Two of the Open Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Gibney, Arkansas, February 2008. The Open Door and the Portrait: Stories of the Seen and the Unseen by Margaret O. Oliphant. The Open Door, Part Two. Noises. Oh, I. There'll be noises, the wind in the trees, and the water soughing down the glen. As for tramps, Colonel, no, there's little of that kind of cattle about here, and Marin at the gate's a careful body. Jarvis moved about with some embarrassment from one leg to another as he spoke. He kept in the shade, and did not look at me more than he could help. Evidently his mind was perturbed, and he had reasons for keeping his own counsel. His wife sat by, giving him a quick look now and then, but saying nothing. The kitchen was very snug and warm and bright, as different as could be from the chill and mystery of the night outside. "'I think you are trifling with me, Jarvis,' I said. "'Trifling, Colonel? No me. What would I trifle for? If the devil himself was in the old hoose, I have no interest in it one way or another.' "'Sandy, hold your peace,' cried his wife imperatively. "'And what am I to hold my peace for, with the colonel standin' there askin' all the questions? "'I'm sayin', if the devil himself—' "'And I'm tellin' ye hold your peace,' cried the woman, in great excitement. "'Dark November weather, and long nights, and us that can and we can. "'How dare ye name a name that shouldn't be spoken?' "'She threw down her stocking and got up, also in great agitation. "'I tell ye ye never could keep it.' It's no a thing that will hide, and the hell town kens as weel as you or me. Tell the colonel straight out, or see, I'll do it. I dinna hold with your secrets, and a secret that the whole town kens. She snapped her fingers with an air of large disdain. As for Jarvis, ruddy and big as he was, he shrank to nothing before this decided woman. He repeated to her two or three times her own adjuration. Hold your peace. Then, suddenly changing his tone, cried out, "'Tell him, then, confound ye! I'll wash my hands of it. "'If all the ghosts in Scotland were in the old hoose, "'is that any concern of mine?' After this I elicited, without much difficulty, the whole story. In the opinion of the Jarvises, and of everybody about, the certainty that the place was haunted was beyond all doubt. As Sandy and his wife warmed to the tale, one tripping up another in their eagerness to tell everything, it gradually developed as distinct a superstition as I ever heard, and not without poetry and pathos. How long it was since the voice had been heard first, nobody could tell with certainty. Jarvis's opinion was that his father, who had been coachman at Brentwood before him, had never heard anything about it, and that the whole thing had arisen within the last ten years, since the complete dismantling of the old house, which was a wonderfully modern date for a tale so well authenticated. According to these witnesses, and to several whom I questioned afterwards, and who were all in perfect agreement, it was only in the months of November and December that the visitation occurred. During these months, the darkest of the year, scarcely a night passed without the recurrence of these inexplicable cries. Nothing, it was said, had ever been seen, at least nothing that could be identified. Some people, bolder or more imaginative than the others, had seen the darkness moving, Mrs. Jarvis said, with unconscious poetry. It began when night fell, and continued at intervals till day broke. 
Very often it was only all inarticulate cry and moaning, but sometimes the words which had taken possession of my poor boy's fancy had been distinctly audible. Oh, mother, let me in! The Jarvises were not aware that there had ever been any investigation into it. The estate of Brentwood had lapsed into the hands of a distant branch of the family, who had lived but little there, and of the many people who had taken it, as I had done, few had remained through two Decembers. And nobody had taken the trouble to make a very close examination into the facts. No, no, Jarvis said, shaking his head. No, no, Colonel. What would set themselves up for a laughing-stock to all the countryside, making a work about a ghost? Nobody believes in ghosts. It bid to be the wind in the trees, the last gentleman said, or some effect of the water rasslin' among the rocks. He said it was a quite easy explained, but he gave up the hoose. And when you came, Colonel, we were awful anxious you should never hear. What for should I have spoiled the bargain and harmed the property for nothing? Do you call my child's life nothing? I said in the trouble of the moment, unable to restrain myself. And instead of telling this all to me, you have told it to him, to a delicate boy, a child unable to sift evidence or judgment for himself, a tender hearted young creature. I was walking about the room with an anger all the hotter that I felt it to be most likely quite unjust. My heart was full of bitterness against the stolid retainers of the family who were content to risk other people's children and comfort rather than let a house be empty. If I had been warned, I might have taken precautions, or left the place, or sent Roland away, a hundred things which now I could not do. And here I was with my boy in a brain fever, and his life, the most precious life on earth, hanging in the balance, dependent on whether or not I could get to the reason of a commonplace ghost story. I paced about in high wrath, not seeing what I was to do, for to take Roland away, even if he were able to travel, would not settle his agitated mind and I feared even that a scientific explanation of refracted sound, or reverberation, or any other of the easy certainties with which we elder men are silenced, would have very little effect upon the boy. "'Colonel,' said Jarvis solemnly, "'and she'll bear me witness. The young gentleman never heard a word from me, no, nor from either groom or gardener. I'll give you my word for that. In the first place, he's no a lad that invites you to talk. There are some that are.' and some that arena. Some will draw you on, till you've telt them all the clatter of the tune, and I ye ken, and whiles mare. But Master Roland, his mind's full of his books. He's aye civil and kind, and a fine lad, but not that sort. And ye see it's for all our interests, Colonel, that you should stay at Brentwood. I took it upon me myself to pass the word. No a syllable to Master Roland, nor to the young ladies, not a syllable. The women servants, that have little reason to be out at night, ken little or nothing about it, and some think it grand to have a ghost so long as they're knowin' the way of comin' across it. If you had been telt the story to begin with, maybe you would have thought so yourself. This was true enough, though it did not throw any light upon my perplexity. If we had heard of it to start with, it is possible that all the family would have considered the possession of a ghost a distinct advantage. It is the fashion of the times. We never think what a risk it is to play with young imaginations, but cry out, in the fashionable jargon, a ghost! Nothing else was wanted to make it perfect. I should not have been above this myself. I should have smiled, of course, at the idea of the ghost at all, but then to feel that it was mine would have pleased my vanity. Oh, yes, I claim no exemption. The girls would have been delighted. 
I could fancy their eagerness, their interest and excitement. No, if we had been told, it would have done no good. We should have made the bargain all the more eagerly, the fools that we are. And there has been no attempt to investigate it, I said, to see what it really is. Eh, hey, Colonel, said the coachman's wife. What would investigate, as you call it, a thing that nobody believes in? You would be the laughing stock of all the countryside, as my man says. But you believe in it, I said, turning upon her hastily. The woman was taken by surprise. She made a step backward out of my way. Lord, Colonel, how you frighten a body! Me! There's awful strange things in this world. An unlearned person doesn't ken what to think. But the minister and the gentry, they just laugh in your face. Inquire into the thing that is not. Na, na, we just let it be. Come with me, Jarvis, I said hastily, and we'll make an attempt at least. Say nothing to the men or to anybody. I'll come back after dinner, and we'll make a serious attempt to see what it is, if it is anything. If I hear it, which I doubt, you may be sure that I shall never rest till I make it out. Be ready for me about ten o'clock. Me, Colonel, Jarvis said, in a faint voice. I had not been looking at him in my own preoccupation, but when I did so, I found that the greatest change had come over the fat and ruddy coachman. Me, Colonel, he repeated, wiping the perspiration from his brow. His ruddy face hung in flabby folds, his knees knocked together, his voice seemed half extinguished in his throat. Then he began to rub his hands and smile upon me in a deprecating, imbecile way. There's nothing I wouldn't do to pleasure you, Colonel. Taking a step further back, I'm sure she kens. I've aye said I never had to do with a mere fade, will-spoken gentleman. Here Jarvis came to a pause, again looking at me, rubbing his hands. Well, I said. But eh, sir, he went on, with the same imbecile yet insinuating smile. If you'll reflect that I am no use to my feet, with a horse atween my legs, or the reins in my hand, I may be nay worse than other men. But on fit, Colonel, it's no the boggles. But I've been cavalry, you see, with a little hoarse laugh, all my life, to face a thing you didn't understand on your feet, Colonel. Well, sir, if I do it, said I tartly, why shouldn't you? Eh, Colonel, there's an awful difference. In the first place, you tramp about the whole countryside and think nothing of it, but a walk tires me mare than a hundred miles drive. And then you're a gentleman, and do your own pleasure, and you're no so old as me, and it's for your own baron, you see, Colonel, and then... He believes in it, Colonel, and you didn't believe in it, the woman said. Will you come with me, I said, turning to her? She jumped back, upsetting her chair in her bewilderment. Me? With a scream, and then fell into a sort of hysterical laugh. I wouldn't say but what I would go, but what would the folk say to hear of Colonel Mortimer with an old silly woman at his heels? The suggestion made me laugh, too, though I had little inclination for it. I'm sorry you have so little spirit, Jarvis, I said. I must find someone else, I suppose. Jarvis, touched by this, began to remonstrate, but I cut him short. My butler was a soldier who had been with me in India, and was not supposed to fear anything, man or devil, certainly not the former, and I felt that I was losing time. The Jarvises were too thankful to get rid of me. They attended me to the door with the most anxious courtesies. Outside, the two grooms stood close by, a little confused by my sudden exit. I don't know if perhaps they had been listening, as least standing as near as possible, to catch any scrap of the conversation. I waved my hand to them as I went past, 
in answer to their salutations, and it was very apparent to me that they also were glad to see me go. And it will be thought very strange, but it would be weak not to add, that I myself, though bent on the investigation I have spoken of, pledged to Roland to carry it out, and feeling that my boy's health, perhaps his life, depended on the result of my inquiry, I felt the most unaccountable reluctance to pass these ruins on the way home. My curiosity was intense, and yet it was all my mind could do to pull my body along. I dare say the scientific people would describe it the other way, and attribute my cowardice to the state of my stomach. I went on, but if I had followed my impulse, I should have turned and bolted. Everything in me seemed to cry out against it. My heart thumped, my pulses all began, like sledgehammers, beating against my ears and every sensitive part. It was very dark, as I have said. The old house, with its shapeless tower, loomed a heavy mass through the darkness, which was only not entirely so solid as itself. On the other hand, the great dark cedars, of which we were so proud, seemed to fill up the night. My foot strayed out of the path in my confusion and the gloom together, and I brought myself up with a cry as I felt myself knock against something solid. What was it? The contact with hard stone and lime and prickly bramble bushes restored me a little to myself. Oh, it's only the old gable, I said aloud, with a little laugh to reassure myself. The rough feeling of the stones reconciled me. As I groped about thus, I shook off my visionary folly. What so easily explained as that I should have strayed from the path in the darkness? This brought me back to common existence, as if I had been shaken by a wise hand out of all the silliness of superstition. How silly it was, after all! What did it matter which path I took? I laughed again, this time with better heart, when suddenly, in a moment, the blood was chilled in my veins, a shiver stole along my spine, my faculties seemed to forsake me. Close by me, at my side, at my feet, there was a sigh. No, not a groan, not a moaning, not anything so tangible, a perfectly soft, faint, inarticulate sigh. I sprang back, and my heart stopped beating. Mistaken? No, mistake was impossible. I heard it as clearly as I hear myself speak, a long, soft, weary sigh, as if drawn to the utmost, and emptying out a load of sadness that filled the breast. To hear this in the solitude, in the dark, in the night, though it was still early, had an effect which I cannot describe. I feel it now, something cold creeping over me, up into my hair, and down to my feet, which refused to move. I cried out with a trembling voice, "'Who is there?' as I had done before, but there was no reply. I got home I don't quite know how, but in my mind there was no longer any indifference as to the thing, whatever it was, that haunted these ruins. My skepticism disappeared like a mist. I was as firmly determined that there was something as Roland was. I did not for a moment pretend to myself that it was possible I could be deceived. There were movements and noises which I understood all about, cracklings of small branches in the frost, and little rolls of gravel on the path, such as have a very eerie sound sometimes, and perplex you with wonder as to who has done it, when there is no real mystery, but I assure you all these little movements of nature don't affect you one bit, when there is something. I understood them. I did not understand the sigh. That was not simple nature. There was meaning in it, feeling, the soul of a creature invisible. This is the thing that human nature trembles at, a creature invisible, yet with sensations, 
feelings, a power somehow of expressing itself. I had not the same sense of unwillingness to turn my back upon the scene of the mystery which I had experienced in going to the stables, but I almost ran home, impelled by my eagerness to get everything done that had to be done, in order to apply myself to finding it out. Bagley was in the hall as usual when I went in. He was always there in the afternoon, always with the appearance of perfect occupation, yet, so far as I know, never doing anything. The door was open, so that I hurried in without any pause, breathless. But the sight of his calm regard, as he came to help me off with my overcoat, subdued me in a moment. Anything out of the way, anything incomprehensible, faded to nothing in the presence of Bagley. You saw and wondered how he was made, the parting of his hair, the tie of his white neckcloth, the fit of his trousers, all perfect as works of art. But you could see how they were done, which makes all the difference. I flung myself upon him, so to speak, without waiting to note the extreme unlikeliness of the man to anything of the kind I meant. Bagley, I said, I want you to come out with me tonight to watch for— "'Poachers, Colonel?' he said, a gleam of pleasure running all over him. "'No, Bagley, a great deal worse,' I cried. "'Yes, Colonel. At what hour, sir?' the man said. But then I had not told him what it was. It was ten o'clock when we set out. All was perfectly quiet indoors. My wife was with Roland, who had been quite calm, she said, and who, though no doubt the fever must run its course, had been better ever since I came. I told Bagley to put on a thick greatcoat over his evening coat, and did the same myself, with strong boots, for the soil was like a sponge or worse. Talking to him, I almost forgot what we were going to do. It was darker even than it had been before, and Bagley kept very close to me as we went along. I had a small lantern in my hand, which gave us a partial guidance. We had come to the corner where the path turns. On one side was the bowling green, which the girls had taken possession of for their croquet ground, a wonderful enclosure surrounded by high hedges of holly, three hundred years old and more. On the other, the ruins. Both were black as night, but before we got so far, there was a little opening in which we could just discern the trees and the lighter line of the road. I thought it best to pause there and take breath. Bagley, I said, there is something about these ruins I don't understand. It is there I am going. Keep your eyes open and your wits about you. Be ready to pounce upon any stranger you see. Anything, man or woman. Don't hurt, but seize anything you see. Colonel, said Bagley, with a little tremor in his breath. They do say there's things there, as is neither man nor woman. There was no time for words. Are you game to follow me, my man? That's the question, I said. Bagley fell in without a word and saluted. I knew then I had nothing to fear. We went, so far as I could guess, exactly as I had come, when I heard that sigh. The darkness, however, was so complete that all marks, as of trees or paths, disappeared. One moment we felt our feet on the gravel, another sinking noiselessly into the slippery grass. That was all. I had to shut up my lantern, not wishing to scare anyone, whoever it might be. Bagley followed, it seemed to me, exactly in my footsteps as I made my way, as I supposed, toward the mass of the ruined house. We seemed to take a long time groping along seeking this. The squash of the wet soil under our feet was the only thing that marked our progress. After a while I stood still to see, or rather feel, where we were, 
The darkness was very still, but no stiller than is usual in a winter's night. The sounds I have mentioned, the crackling of twigs, the roll of a pebble, the sound of some rustle in the dead leaves, or creeping creature on the grass, were audible when you listened, all mysterious enough when your mind is disengaged, but to me cheering now as signs of the livingness of nature, even in the death of the frost. As we stood still there came up from the trees in the glen the prolonged hoot of an owl. Bagley started with alarm, being in a state of general nervousness, and not knowing what he was afraid of. But to me the sound was encouraging and pleasant, being so comprehensible. "'An owl,' I said, under my breath. "'Yes, Colonel,' said Bagley, his teeth chattering. We stood still about five minutes, while it broke into the still brooding of the air, the sound widening out in circles, dying upon the darkness. This sound, which is not a cheerful one, made me almost gay. It was natural, and relieved the tension of the mind. I moved on with new courage, my nervous excitement calming down. When all at once, quite suddenly, close to us, at our feet, there broke out a cry. I made a spring backwards in the first moments of surprise and horror, and in doing so came sharply against the same rough masonry and brambles that had struck me before. This new sound came upwards from the ground, a low, moaning, wailing voice, full of suffering and pain. The contrast between it and the hoot of the owl was indescribable, the one with a wholesome wildness and naturalness that hurt nobody, the other a sound that made one's blood curdle, full of human misery. With a great deal of fumbling, for in spite of everything I could do to keep up my courage my hands shook, I managed to remove the slide of my lantern. The light leaped out like something living, and made the place visible in a moment. We were what would have been inside the ruined building had anything remained but the gable wall which I have described. It was close to us, the vacant doorway in it going out straight into the blackness outside. The light showed the bit of wall, the ivy glistening upon it in clouds of dark green, the bramble branches waving, and below the open door. A door that led to nothing. It was from this the voice came, which died out just as the light flashed upon this strange scene. There was a moment's silence, and then it broke forth again. The sound was so near, so penetrating, so pitiful, that, in the nervous start I gave, the light fell out of my hand. As I groped for it in the dark, my hand was touched by Bagley, who, I think, must have dropped upon his knees. But I was too much perturbed myself to think much of this. He clutched at me in the confusion of his terror, forgetting all his usual decorum. "'For God's sake, what is it, sir?' he gasped. If I yielded, there was evidently an end of both of us. "'I can't tell,' I said. "'Any more than you. That's what we've got to find out. Up, man, up!' I pulled him to his feet. "'Will you go round and examine the other side, or will you stay here with the lantern?' Bagley gasped at me with a face of horror. "'Can't we stay together, Colonel?' he said. His knees were trembling under him. I pushed him against the corner of the wall and put the light into his hands. "'Stand fast till I come back. Shake yourself together, man. Let nothing pass you,' I said. The voice was within two or three feet of us. Of that there could be no doubt. I went myself to the other side of the wall, keeping close to it. The light shook in Bagley's hand, but, tremulous though it was, shone out through the vacant door, one oblong block of light marking all the crumbling corners and hanging masses of foliage. 
Was that something dark huddled in a heap by the side of it? I pushed forward across the light in the doorway and fell upon it with my hands, but it was only a juniper bush growing close against the wall. Meanwhile, the sight of my figure crossing the doorway had brought Bagley's nervous excitement to a height. He flew at me, gripping my shoulder. "'I've got him, Colonel, I've got him!' he cried, with a voice of sudden exultation. He thought it was a man, and was at once relieved. But at that moment the voice burst forth again between us, at our feet, more close to us than any separate being could be. He dropped off from me and fell against the wall, his jaw dropping as if he were dying. I suppose, at the same moment, he saw that it was me whom he had clutched. I, for my part, had scarcely more command of myself. I snatched the light out of his hand and flashed it all about me wildly. Nothing. The juniper bush which I thought I had never seen before. The heavy growth of the glistening ivy, the brambles waving. It was close to my ears now, crying, crying, pleading as if for life. Either I heard the same words Roland had heard, or else, in my excitement, his imagination got possession of mine. The voice went on, growing into distinct articulation, but wavering about, now from one point, now from another, as if the owner of it were moving slowly back and forward. Mother! Mother! And then an outburst of wailing. As my mind steadied, getting accustomed, as one's mind gets accustomed to anything, it seemed to me as if some uneasy, miserable creature was pacing up and down before a closed door. Sometimes, but that must have been excitement, I thought I heard a sound like knocking, and then another burst. Oh, mother, mother! All this close, close to the space where I was standing with my lantern, now before me, now behind me, a creature restless, unhappy, moaning, crying, before the vacant doorway, which no one could either shut or open more. Do you hear it, Bagley? Do you hear what it is saying? I cried, stepping in through the doorway. He was lying against the wall, his eyes glazed, half dead with terror. He made a motion of his lips as if to answer me, but no sounds came, then lifted his hand with a curious imperative movement as if ordering me to be silent and listen. And how long I did so I cannot tell. It began to have an interest, an exciting hold upon me, which I could not describe. It seemed to call up visibly a scene any one could understand, a something shut out, restlessly wandering to and fro. Sometimes the voice dropped, as if throwing itself down, sometimes wandered off a few paces, growing sharp and clear. Oh, mother, let me in! Oh, mother, mother, let me in! Oh, let me in! Every word was clear to me. No wonder the boy had gone wild with pity. I tried to steady my mind upon Roland, upon his conviction that I could do something, but my head swam with the excitement, even when I partially overcame the terror. At last the words died away, and there was a sound of sobs and moaning. I cried out, "'In the name of God, who are you?' with a kind of feeling in my mind that to use the name of God was profane, seeing that I did not believe in ghosts or anything supernatural. But I did it all the same, and waited, my heart giving a leap of terror lest there should be a reply. Why this should have been I cannot tell, but I had a feeling that if there was an answer it would be more than I could bear. But there was no answer. The moaning went on, and then, as if it had been real, the voice rose a little higher again. The words recommenced. Oh, mother, let me in! Oh, mother, let me in! 
with an expression that was heartbreaking to hear. As if it had been real! What do I mean by that? I suppose I got less alarmed as the thing went on. I began to recover the use of my senses. I seemed to explain it all to myself by saying that this had once happened, that it was a recollection of a real scene. Why there should have seemed something quite satisfactory and composing in this explanation I cannot tell, but so it was. I began to listen almost as if it had been a play, forgetting Bagley, who, I almost think, had fainted, leaning against the wall. I was startled out of this strange spectatorship that had fallen upon me by the sudden rush of something which made my heart jump once more, a large black figure in the doorway waving its arms. "'Come in! Come in! Come in!' it shouted out hoarsely at the top of a deep bass voice, and then poor Bagley fell down senseless across the threshold. He was less sophisticated than I. He had not been able to bear it any longer. I took him for something supernatural, as he took me, and it was some time before I awoke to the necessities of the moment. I remembered only after, that from the time I began to give my attention to the man, I heard the other voice no more. It was some time before I brought him to. It must have been a strange scene, the lantern making a luminous spot in the darkness, the man's white face lying on the black earth, I over him, doing what I could do for him, probably I should have been thought to be murdering him had anyone seen us. When at last I succeeded in pouring a little brandy down his throat, he sat up and looked about him wildly. "'What's up?' he said, then, recognizing me, tried to struggle to his feet with a faint, "'Beg your pardon, Colonel.' I got him home as best I could, making him lean upon my arm. The great fellow was as weak as a child. Fortunately, he did not for some time remember what had happened." From the time Bagley fell, the voice had stopped, and all was still. End of Part 2